I've got my eye out this morning for middle school and high school students and those who served the, the adults. If uh, We've had a great retreat from what I heard on Friday and Saturday. Thank you uh, for everyone who served there, Billy, Ben, worship team, uh, those adults who went and were kind of um, keeping things between the curbs, so to speak. <laughs> Thank you so much. It sounded like a great, a great 30 hours together. All right. <clears throat> if you'd open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. What happens when drunk people drive cars? What happens? Usually bad things happen. I'm not sure if you've ever been pulled over before, or you've seen someone pulled over before, or know of someone who's been pulled over before for a DUI or OWI. Usually what happens is a concerned police officer sees a car being driven erratically, and so the police officer out of concern will pull the car over, and then they'll have that driver go through some field tests to see if that driver's judgment is impaired, listening for slurred speech, balance, coordination, and typically the police officer will administer the breathalyzer. And what the breathalyzer measures is the amount of alcohol in someone's breath. And so if the alcohol level is over 0.08, that driver is legally intoxicated and therefore can be arrested and charged with a DUI or a, in Wisconsin, an OWI, operating while intoxicated. Why do police officers enforce these laws? Well, typically when drunk people drive cars, people get hurt. People die. It's dangerous and destructive. We all know that drinking alcohol to excess impairs a person's judgment on the road. They lose control. But let's forget about the road for a second. How about life? What is the effect of drunkenness on a person's self-worth or a person's relationship with other people that they love? or a person's effectiveness in the workplace, or a person's decision-making ability. Drunkenness impairs a person's ability to live their life. It's just not limited to driving. If you're like me, your family has stories. Family members who were drunks, and made messes of their lives, my family has suffered its share of heartache due to the abuse of alcohol. Why is there alcohol abuse? The problem's not alcohol. The problem is what sinners do with alcohol. Many people use alcohol as an escape, a way to cope with the harshness of life, Check out. You know, booze is a relatively cheap way to medicate your life. And what people don't realize is that when, when they begin to turn to the bottle for deliverance, 
It's just a matter of time before their deliverer becomes their captor. Instead of freedom, they become ensnared by a really confusing mix. Longing for relief, physical addiction, binging, hopelessness. hopelessness. It's, it's a cycle of despair. It's nasty to be in that cycle. It's nasty to be in a relationship who's in that cycle. It's a hard place to be. Drunkenness is a serious problem. And it does serious damage. And what we're going to read in our text today is that Christians, we are not to live our lives under the intoxicating influence of alcohol. That's a no-go. In fact, Christians are commanded in the passage that we're going to see today to live under the influence of something else. Someone else. The Holy Spirit. Christians are not to be impaired by alcohol, but empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is empowered by the Holy Spirit for the glory of Christ. A life lived by the power of the Holy Spirit, filled by the Spirit, is a life pleasing to Christ. Do you want to live for Christ? You must be filled by the Spirit. Well, only one life, which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And how do you do that? you got to be filled by the Spirit. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, 18 through 21. Let me read that for us now. And as I read, I want you to be seeing something. There are two different lifestyles that Paul brings out here. The drunken life and the spirit-empowered life. They have some similarities, but they are very different. Let me read this passage. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. We don't use that word too much in our everyday speech. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence, for Christ, two ways to live, two ways to live here, the drunken life and the spirit-empowered life, a life filled and continually filled by the Spirit of God. We're going to see some similarities here. Between these two lives, there is an influential agent. In the drunken life, it's vino, wine. In the spirit-empowered life, it's the Spirit of God. There's another thing we're going to see. The goal. In the drunken life, the goal that's prohibited here is drunkenness. In the spirit-empowered life, the goal is to be filled. Filled with something amazing. I can't wait to show you. And the last thing we're going to see is similarities. The results. 
The result of the drunken life is this word that we read in our English version, debauchery. The debauched life. And over in the spirit-empowered life, we're going to see the result is a life devoted to Christ and it looks a certain way. You want to live for Christ, you must be filled by His Spirit. So now let's turn to this first lifestyle. Lifestyle number one, the drunken life. We're going to look at the drunken life first. We're going to look at the influential agent goal result. And then we're going to turn to the lifestyle, uh, the spirit-empowered life, and we'll look at the influential agent. We'll look at the goal. We'll look at the results. And Lord willing, we'll be compelled. Lifestyle one. We see that in the first part of Ephesians 5, 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. The influential agent that Paul's talking about is wine. Do not get drunk with wine. Now, back in the first century, wine would have been a common feature at every meal. It was part of the culture. It would be like a gallon of milk in your refrigerator right now. But they didn't have refrigerators back there. They, didn't, they had no way to keep cool their goat milk. And the first century did not have carbonated beverages e- either. There was not a Coke machine in the Agora in Ephesus keeping a Coke icy cold for you. Wine was a very common, ordinary beverage of the day. And it could be preserved. So it was very common. Here's what I'm getting at. In the New Testament, God does not forbid, he does not prohibit the drinking of wine. Wine is not in and of itself dirty in God's eyes. Think of John chapter 2, Jesus at the wedding of Cana. He made water into wine. The cup at the Last Supper was not filled with Welch's grape juice. It was filled with wine. In 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul writes Timothy, Timothy, would you drink some wine to help your stomach a little bit? In Mark 7, and this is the clincher, Jesus pronounces all food clean, including wine. Why? Because it's not what you eat or drink that makes you dirty in God's eyes. It's what comes out of your heart that makes you dirty in God's eyes. Our problem is not what comes in us. It's our problem what's already in us and comes out of us. Sinful hearts. Wine's not the problem. The problem resides in our hearts. So Paul's not forbidding wine here. He's forbidding the sinful use of wine here. Getting drunk with wine. Or any other alcoholic beverage for that matter. And so the influential agent here is Paul kind of looks at wine, but we realize that the problem is much more deeper than wine. It's our hearts. And then he goes and talks about the goal, that which is forbidden 
The command is do not get drunk with wine. Your Bible has quite a bit to say about drunkenness. And Christians must not get drunk. And the question becomes, why not? Why not get drunk? Well, I've got three reasons for you. The last one I find to be the most compelling. Here's number one. Getting drunk leads to a loss of self-control. And God doesn't want his people losing control of themselves. Rather, God wants his people growing in self-control. It is a fruit of the Spirit. God doesn't want something other than himself directing the lives of his people, controlling the lives of his people. And so the reason, number one, Christians shouldn't get drunk is a loss of self-control. And God wants to do the very opposite in us. He wants us to grow in self-control. The second reason why Christians shouldn't get drunk is getting drunk leads to the impairing of your judgment. Brawling, beer goggling, boasting. Did you know that in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, a person is disqualified from being an elder or a deacon in the church if they are a drunkard or addicted to much wine. It evidences not only just a lack of self-control, but it also reveals impaired judgment. God doesn't want people with impaired judgment leading his church. It's a recipe for disaster. God wants us to be sober-minded. The last reason, and I find to me the most compelling, why we should not get drunk is this. Drunkenness is a characteristic of those who are living in darkness. If Christians are getting drunk, it makes for a very confusing witness. Getting drunk is part of a lifestyle of those who are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the hardness of their heart. Getting drunk is a part of the old way of living. When God changed us, He delivered us, and He delivered us out of an old way of living, the former manner of life. Drunkenness, getting drunk was part of that. He called us out of it. In Ephesians 5.11, we read that we're not to participate in the unfruitful works of darkness anymore, but rather expose them. Drunkenness would fall under an unfruitful work of darkness. There's nothing, that, nothing good that comes out of it. By the grace of God, he's called us out of this lifestyle. Drunkenness is inconsistent with walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. In other words, God is calling us to be habitually sober. And it sets us apart as Christians. First, P First Thessalonians 5, 4 through 8, Paul is making a case. Jesus is coming back. And so he's saying, hey, don't live in darkness. You're not darkness anymore. Don't, don't get drunk in darkness. That's what you used to be. So you know the light now. So be sober. It's a very sharp contrast between the two. It's safe to say that drunkenness is an unwise way of living, Ephesians 5.15. It's not making the most of the time, Ephesians 5.16. It's not understanding the eternal will of God to unite all things in Christ, Ephesians 
Getting drunk is a big waste of time with a devastating result, which the apostle calls debauchery. So we've looked at the agent. We've looked at the goal. It's forbidden. Don't get drunk. And now let's look at the result. The apostle says, don't, don't get drunk with wine. That's, that's debauchery. Let me paint you two pictures. I want to help you see a biblical example of the debauched life. And then I want to provide for you a picture of the result of the debauched life. Do you remember the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15? Remember that? Jesus is, he's just a brilliant teacher, the greatest of all teachers. And so he comes up with this parable to teach about God's heart for the lost. And in that story, in that parable, there are two sons. And the younger son, in a stunning act of arrogance, do you remember what he does? He demands of his father, hey, give me my inheritance. It was, it was audacious. You know what he's saying? Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me, my, give me what's coming. His dad gives him his portion. And that younger son in this parable journeys to a far country. In verse 13, we read this. Remember this? And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Reckless living. That word translated reckless in Luke 15 is, is a form of the word translated debauchery in Ephesians 5.18. Reckless living. Careless living. Living without caring about consequences. A life of drunkenness is a life of recklessness. Hey, there may be some initial excitement, but you always bottom out. You always bottom out. And that's where I want to help you see a picture of what it looks like to bottom out. When I was in high school, which was just 10 years ago, if you're wondering. When I was in high school, a close friend of mine had a Jeep, and so did I. And one day we set out to have some fun together. And we found a massive mud bog. We put our Jeeps in four-wheel drive, and we drove through that mud bog over and over again. Four-wheel drive engaged, engines roaring, mud flying. We were laughing and enjoying ourselves. It was wonderful. But in our recklessness, we didn't see what was happening. Every time we drove through the mud bog, we were deepening ruts. And eventually, my friend bottomed out. The ruts were so deep, it, his, the bottom of his Jeep got stuck in the mud and his wheels were just spinning. No traction. Our carelessness had blinded us to what was actually happening. We were digging ourselves into a hole and we couldn't get ourselves out. It's a picture of what debauchery leads to. Careless, reckless life, engine roaring, mud flying, a lot of laughter. It's just a matter of time before you bottom out and you find yourself stuck 
Your wheels are spinning. You're going nowhere. Anybody relate with that? That's where drunkenness leads. Stuck, wheels spinning, going nowhere. That's where pornography leads. Getting stuck, wheels spinning, going nowhere. Sleeping around leads to wheels getting stuck, wheels spinning, going nowhere. Vanity, love of money, it all goes to the same spot. The mire. Getting stuck, wheels spinning, going nowhere. I know that place. It's miserable. My friend and I eventually realized that there was nothing we could do to rescue ourselves. So we had to make a phone call to my friend's dad, and oh man, he was not happy. He sent a heavy-duty tow truck down to our little mud patch, and that truck pulled my friend's Jeep out of the mud. Do you know what God was happy to do? He was happy to send his son Jesus to pull the likes of me and you out of the mud of debauchery. He pulled us out. He pulled us out of the muddy mess of our own making. And what God in Christ has done, alcohol can never do. Only Christ can deliver only Christ gives true freedom. And so if you are in the mire of a debauched life, your only hope to get pulled out is Jesus. That is who Jesus is. He's a rescuer. And Christians are those who've been rescued by Jesus. Those who've been pulled out of the mire and saved by Jesus. And now we steer clear of the mire. We steer clear of the debauchery. We know better. We no longer come under the intoxicating influence of wine, but rather we come under the powerful influence of the Holy Spirit. So here's the command. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, don't get drunk with wine. It's, it's a prohibition. It's a negative command. Don't do that. And it's in the present tense, which means this. You are to habitually not do that. So if you are habitually drinking wine to get drunk, you must stop. And if you haven't started, don't start. It's not a lifestyle that we are to be a part of. God has called us out of that. And what he's called us to is a lifestyle so much better, so much sweeter, so much more satisfying. Lifestyle number two, the Spirit-empowered life. In lifestyle one, the drunken life, we saw that the agent was wine. In the Spirit-empowered life, we read that the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us. But be filled with the Spirit the Holy Spirit. As your pastor, I just want to keep on reminding you of something. The Holy Spirit is not an it. 
The Holy Spirit is a who. He, He indwells us. The Holy Spirit is not a who, not an it, but a who, and, and He's not any ordinary who. He is a fully divine who. He is the third person of the Trinity. And God the Holy Spirit is looking to exercise his presence and his power for a particular purpose in the life of a Christian. Here's what that purpose is. Jesus speaks of it in John 16, 14. Four words Jesus saying, this is red ink, he will glorify me. Jesus talking about when the Holy Spirit is sent, Jesus saying when he comes, he will glorify me. He's going to spotlight me. He's going to make much of me. J.I. Packer, he is like this warrior Christian stud of a guy. He's written a lot of books. He's a godly man, exercised a lot of influence on the evangelical church. Well, he tells a story. He was um, in Vancouver, and he was slated to preach at a church on this passage, John 16, 14. He will glorify me. And he's walking up to that church, and evening has fallen. And so it's dark, and Mr. Packard had yet to have an opening illustration. So he's like wondering, where am I going to start? And as he's walking up to this building, he becomes immediately aware of the cross on the side of this building. And he has his opening illustration. Because the only way that he could see the cross was because of the spotlight in the front yard of the church. It was illuminating the cross. And there he had an illustration for his opening for this sermon. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to draw our gaze to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is seeking to illuminate, to make much of, to spotlight Jesus. He will glorify me. The Holy Spirit ministers to God's people in a variety of ways. And what they all have in common is this. He's looking to spotlight Christ in us and through us. And so when we read of the sealing of the Spirit in Ephesians 1.13, in Ephesians 4.30, the Spirit marks us as belonging to Christ. When we read of the indwelling of God's Spirit in Ephesians 2.22, that we, the people of God, are the new temple of God, and God dwells in us by His Spirit. He belongs. He's in us. We belong to Him. We belong to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we read about the baptizing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit baptizes believers into the body of Christ. Individual believers into the corporate body of Christ. Unites them to the body of Jesus. In these examples I just gave you, each of them, they're examples of a one-time event in which the Holy Spirit brings about at the moment of our conversion. And so we can put a past tense on him. We were sealed by the Spirit. We were indwelt by the Spirit. We were baptized by the Spirit 
into the body all at the moment of our conversion. It's done. It's all to spotlight Christ. And here in Ephesians 5.18, we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. This is an ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit to believers. It's not a one-time event. It is an ongoing ministry. And what the Holy Spirit is going to do is He's going to fill us in such a way that Christ is exalted. That Christ is glorified in us. Before I camp out on that word, fill, to be filled, I need to clarify a particular phrase here. When we read in our English versions, be filled with the Holy Spirit, one is left thinking this, I'm empty and I need the Holy Spirit to fill me. And so the idea that we come across uh, from our English version is a sense of, I, I, I need a new kind of fill me upping of the Holy Spirit. He needs to come into me in a fullness of way. Here's the deal. That English rendering is not accurate enough. The best way to translate that from Greek to English is this way. Be filled by the Spirit. This is what Paul's saying. The Holy Spirit is actively seeking to fill us with something. And that which he's seeking to fill us with goes unstated in Ephesians 5.18. But the Holy Spirit is seeking to fill us with something, something amazing. It's important that we get this because it's going to form our expectations. We talked about the agent, the Holy Spirit. He's, he's seeking to, to fill us with something, which leads us to the goal now. What does he want to fill us with? In Ephesians, when Paul uses that word fill, it's, it's spoken of as a controlling presence. What is the Holy Spirit seeking to fill us with? Something that is going to be a controlling presence in our lives. And you know what? It's not wine. It's something else. Would you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19? Paul isn't explicit in 5.18 of, of what he wants to fill us with, the Spirit, fill us with. In 3.14 through 19, it becomes more clear. So let me just set this up. The Ephesians were losing heart because the Apostle Paul was suffering for them. They're feeling bad. And so in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, Paul prays for them. Paul prays for a strengthening of their hearts so that they don't lose heart. And the way he goes about it is very instructive for us when understanding what does it mean to be filled by the Spirit. So let me just walk you through this. In verse 16, Paul prays that God would put strength into these Ephesians, into these Christians. 
And do you see the agency? Do you see who he is asking God to send to strengthen them? That they would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit. And so God, so Paul is saying, God, would you strengthen these Christians through the Holy Spirit? Would you strengthen their inner beings? Would you fill them with something? And then in verse 17, we read what he asked God to fill them with. Do you see that there? 318, excuse me, 317. He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Do you see what he's saying? That the Holy Spirit is going to empower these Christians by mediating the presence of Christ in their hearts. The Spirit of God is going to continually fill Christians with the presence of Christ. That's what we're getting at in Ephesians 5.18. God is going to fill us by His Spirit with the presence of Jesus. We see that played out in verse 19 in, in chapter 3. And, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You follow his logic? He's praying for these Christians. They are needing strength. He prays that the Spirit would strengthen them by causing Christ to dwell in their hearts afresh and fill them with the fullness of God. You, you seen it? If you flip your Bible over to Ephesians 4.13, Paul is talking about the church. He's talking about the gifts he's given to the church for the building up of the body. And we read in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. What's mature manhood? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ. Fullness. The Spirit of God is seeking to fill Christians with the fullness of Christ. Christ in us. The hope of glory. Hold the Holy Spirit is going to empower and influence our lives in such a way that our lives will spotlight Jesus. That's what he's looking to do. That's how he's looking to fill us, fill us with Christ, mediate the presence of Jesus. So we've talked about the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the goal to be filled with the fullness of Christ, the fullness of God. Now let me draw your attention to the result of that. When Jesus, when this Holy Spirit, excuse me, fills us with the presence of Christ, things happen. And we see things happening in Ephesians 5, 19, 20, and 21. There are four participles that look like verbs. And they're all helping us see what the result of being filled by the Spirit looks like. In 19, we read addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in our hearts, thanking God for everything all the time in the name of our Lord Jesus and submitting to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. These four things evidence the, the Spirit filling us with the presence of Christ. Did you notice Christ? Did you notice Him? Did you notice how Jesus shows up? In Ephesians 5, 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, presumably they're going to be about Jesus. It becomes more clear in the next one, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. That reference to Lord is a reference to Jesus. In verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do you see it? The Holy Spirit fills us with the presence of Christ. Jesus is spotlighted. And so here we have in this passage what it looks like to live out a corporate filling of the Holy Spirit. That we are to address one another in a certain way. With psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This past week I got addressed this way. Can I, can I, can I bring you into it? I got a letter on Thursday. And I opened up the letter and this is what I read. Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. And when I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. And on the cross my burdens gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Do you know what I was addressed with on Thursday? A hymn. This is how great thou art. It was evidence of the spirit filling in a brother who sent this to me. I was so encouraged by it. When the spirit of God fills us, we address one another a particular way. When the spirit of God fills us, we sing a certain way. We sing with all of our hearts to the Lord, to Jesus. When the Spirit of God fills us, we give thanks for everything all the time to God our Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is evidencing a filling of the Spirit in us. The Spirit of God filling us with the presence of Jesus, resulting in the spotlighting of Jesus. When the Spirit of God fills us, we, like Christ, humble ourselves and submit to one another and experience unity. We see that played out in Philippians 2. We see it played out in Ephesians 4. But what I wanted you to notice was how it's all aimed at Jesus. It doesn't stop there. If you start looking at Paul's commands to wives in Ephesians 4.22, if you look at Paul's commands to husband, husbands in Ephesians 4.25, if you look at Paul's command to children in Ephesians 6.1, if you look at Paul's commands to parents in Ephesians 6.4, slaves, masters, do you know all ends up with? It all points to Jesus. These rules for household living, they're all spirit-filled. Let me summarize this command. Be filled, but be filled. It's 
looks a lot different than this other living under the influence. We're not to be intoxicated by wine, which leads to debauchery. We are to be filled. It's ongoing command. We're to be regularly and ongoingly coming under the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's in the passive tense. Here's what that means. We don't do the filling. We're the ones being filled. We're the ones being acted upon. We're the ones in need. We're the ones who are dependent. We're the ones who need God to work in us on a daily basis so that we can live for Jesus. So the question that this kind of boils down to is, how do you do that? How are you filled with the Holy Spirit? How does that happen? Well, there's no formula given here. But what I can point you to is this. This past week I was reading, obviously, about this and preparing, and I came across this by one Bible commentator. I thought it was really helpful, what it means to be filled by the Spirit. With the indwelling of the Spirit at the moment of conversion, each Christian has all of the Spirit, nothing lacking. But the command to be filled by the Spirit enables the Spirit to have all of the believer. In other words, we are being commanded to continually offer ourselves to God. We're continually being commanded to, oh, Spirit of God, come and fall afresh on me today. Come, empower me. Come, strengthen me. Direct me so that today I can live for Jesus. We take our cues from Paul and in Ephesians 3. We pray this. We pray to that. Oh, God, strengthen me with power through your Holy Spirit in my inner being that Christ may dwell in my heart by faith. And we continually ask, we continually ask, we continually ask because we are dependent on God. Two ways to live. The first is the drunken life, a life we've been called out of, results in debauchery. The second life, where we live now, we're being commanded to be filled by the Spirit. Oh, Spirit, come, fall afresh upon me. To what end? That Christ may dwell in me with greater fullness so that I can live for him with greater devotion. Let me close by asking you to do something. Imagine. Each one of us, the individuals of Christ the King Church, on a daily basis, crying out to God to pour out His Spirit so that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith that each of us would be filled in increasing measure with the presence of Jesus. Could you imagine all of us doing that? What would happen? This is the stuff of revivals. A revival is when God pours out His Spirit on His people in an unusually pronounced way. And the result is this. Individual saints and local churches get sanctified. 
transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ in holiness. And as a result of greater transformation, our corporate light is going to shine with greater intensity in the, season, in the city, exposing the unfruitful works of darkness and, by God's grace, awakening dead sinners to Christ. Would you pray this? Would you pray this? Would you ask God to fill you by His Spirit so that Christ may be exalted in your life? And as we do this together, oh, something's going to happen. What happens when a drunk drives cars? Bad things happen. What happens when Christians are filled by the Spirit? Christ-exalting things happen. Let's pray. God in heaven, would you do just this? Lord, we recognize that we are your children and we are in need. God, we don't have what it takes in and of ourselves to live for Christ. And so, Spirit of God, would you fall afresh upon us? And would you give us the strength? Would you direct us so that Christ may fill us afresh? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.